That is all of our testimony together. I was lost, and now I've been found. I was blind, and now I see. I was dead, and now I was alive. And the challenge, I think, is when you've been saved for a while, you forget those things. You forget from where you came, and Peter talks about that. I think it's in 1 Peter. So that when we have trouble really worshiping and we have trouble in our relationship with God, it's so often because we've forgotten where, from where we came. We've forgotten what it was like. I can't imagine what it must be like to live in a world today without knowing Jesus, without knowing you have a future and a hope, without knowing that there's somebody who's watching over you, taking care of you, to face the world. I mean, the world I grew up in was hard enough, but the world that people are growing up in today and that we're living in today is just to do it without Jesus. I don't know how people do it, but that's why we're here, so that they don't have to. Praise the Lord. So thank you, Olam. I'm going to ask you to open to Romans 12. While you're doing that, just remind you where we are in this study. We really are coming down to the end. It's only another week or so that we're going to have this study. And we're talking about the body of Christ and and Ephesians 4. Don't turn to Ephesians, but Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It ends with with Paul emphasizing again as he starts out in that chapter, talking about we're part of the body, of one body. And now he's talking at the end to us individually that we are, are all to take our place in that body because it's his body. And he talks about how the body will not work properly unless and will not grow and mature properly unless every joint does its work and every, unless every part takes its place and performs its function. And we've studied over and over again that you and I are one of those parts. And that means you are called. You are called into the ministry. So that's your job. I'm called into the ministry also. The word ministry just means service. We are all called to take, because we're part of His body, it's simply this. God's already made you to be part of His body. And the calling is for you to act like who you made you to be. So it's not whether you've got a responsibility. It's not whether you've got a calling. You do. Just like my little finger has a calling. It's to it's to be held up and balance my other fingers when I drink coffee. No. But it's, it has a function. So when I write, I, I rest my hand, my right hand, on that little finger. Your little toe has a function, even though it may not seem important to you, but it's part of what your foot needs and your body needs for balance. And you are a part of His body, and He needs you. He's already made you to be that part. He's designed you to be that part. We looked back in Psalm 139, and we saw how God watched over you being formed. He's designed you in such a way so that you would be prepared and equipped to perform your function in His body. And now all it is requires us to just take our place. And so that's what we've been talking about. So we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 12, in which he encourages us. We'll start in verse 1. And we covered this last week, but I want to just pick up here as we begin to to move on and and finish this part of the discussion. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And we talked last week about the fact that they understood what a sacrifice was. A sacrifice was something that was of value to them in that day. Typically, it was an animal that they would bring, and they would bring it to the priest and offer it, and that animal 
which was of value to them, would literally be slaughtered and offered up to God as a sacrifice. Now understand this. God does not require sacrifices because He needs anything. Because that cow, before you brought him to the priest, was already God's because the Bible says He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can't give something to God that He never had before. I mean, we're coming into the Christmas season and, of course, part of the focus of Christmas is giving gifts to people. And you're always thinking, you know, what can I give them that they don't have? Imagine what you can give God He doesn't have. What can you give Him that He needs? What can you give Him He can't get Himself? Nothing. So the, the act of giving something to God is not to satisfy His need because He needs something, but what it is is just an act of worship. Worship is literally recognizing His greater worth than yours. And the way we do that is we present something to Him that is of worth or value to us. So when they brought that animal to them, whether it was a goat or a sheep or sheep or whether it was a, 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 an ox, it was of something that was of value to them because it produced something for them. And so when they brought it and they offered it up as an act of sacrifice, they were declaring to God, you're worth more to me than this animal that I'm bringing to you. Now that's important background because that's what he's talking about here. He says that because of the mercy that God's shown to us, we are to present our bodies. We don't, he's not looking for your, for your ox or your goat or your sheep or your turtle dove. He's not looking for something from you other than the presentation of your body to him and offering that to him because he's worth it. After all, didn't he give his body for us? He didn't hold on to his body. He gave it up for us. In fact, it was beaten. It was ripped. It was, it was pounded. It was humiliated. And he did that, the Bible says. The chastisement for his peace was upon us, and by his stripes we are healed. He went through that for you and for me. Because in his mind, listen carefully, you were worth it for him to give up his own body for you. And now what Paul is saying is because he has shown that mercy to us, we ought to then do the same back to him, present our bodies a living sacrifice to him. Now what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? In some ways, a dead sacrifice is the best kind because it's over once and for all. But a living sacrifice means I come again today and I present my life so that he can live through it. I present my body to him so that he can live through my body. Paul had a hold of this because in Galatians 2.20 he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means he died with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that he li lives in me, he, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that Christ be formed in us by faith. Why? So he can live through us. So that means that we have a responsibility, which he says at the end of this verse, is our reasonable service. Reasonable in light of what? Of what he's done for us. It's reasonable for us to come and present our lives, our bodies to him, and say, here it is. It's already yours. And we've talked about this before. If you're in Christ... And that's how you get saved, is by being in Him. That makes you part of His body. That means you already belong to Him anyway. That's how you got saved. And now all He's requiring of us is we act out what we've already given to Him. 
And so that's what Paul's talking about here. And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now down to verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, so he's talking to all of us, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. For as we are many members in one body, that's what we've been talking about through this whole study, but all members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, verse 6 says, As a consequence of that, then having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us, let us use them. So because you're part of His body, we're all one body. Our identity, as we've talked about, is in Him, that we're part of His body. But the differences that we have in the way God's designed us are because we have differences in our function. And now what he goes on to say is, therefore, because we have gifts differing, let us use them. And he goes on and talks about some of those gifts. If you're prophesying, then use your faith to prophesy. We've talked about the faith. In fact, he goes on and says that we are to use the faith that was given to us to exercise the gift that God has given to us. And that's the study that we've had. Now, all right, we're going to go now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's going to introduce a little new aspect of this, and this is where we want to talk about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Part of the grace, the gifting that was given to Paul was revelation, a revelation of the doctrine that takes up it constitutes about two-thirds of the New Testament. And the doctrine is this, that we are saved not by our good works, not by our obedience to the law, but we are saved by grace that's received through faith. We're saved by putting our faith in what Jesus did for us 2,000 years on that ago on that cross. And that was a revelation that Jesus gave personally to the Apostle Paul. And that is part of the gifting that he gave him, that understanding, that insight. And Paul is saying now that, that he was given this mystery and consider, he said, now we consider ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus and of stewards of the mystery or the gift that was given to us. So we're looking about for, at this because also he's given something to you. It may not be a revelation of that constitutes two-thirds of the New Testament, but it may be some insight or understanding. It may be an ability to teach. It may be an ability to explain something. We've talked about the, the variety of gifts that, that, the, that the Bible tells us are available, and they're going to be expressed differently through different personalities. And most of these gifts are not obvious in a church setting such as the gift of a teacher or a pastor or an apostle or prophet or an evangelist because those operate their gifts in front of people. But as I've explained to you before, there's a gift that you meet when you walk in the front door here. And that's the gift of, of encouragement. It's a greeter, someone that's exercising a, 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 a desire in their heart that God's put in there to encourage people and welcome them and greet them. 
And that it affects the atmosphere in here when people walk in and feel loved and accepted. And that's part of the operation of the body of Christ. And that's no less important than the person that stands up here and declares what the Bible calls the oracles of God. And so he's talking here about exercising these gifts that you've been given. Use these gifts. And so he said, in the same way, I've been made not, not only a, a servant of Christ, but I'm a steward. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is stewardship. Because whatever you've been given by Christ, you're a steward over it. And the first thing we see in verse 2 is, Moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. It is required of a steward that one be found faithful. That's very important because if you've been given a job or responsibility, you need to understand what are they requiring of me? What am I going to have to give an account for? And this is so important when it comes to ministry. And we're talking about your ministry. God holds us responsible, and we'll see this at the end, not for the results. Those are His responsibility. God holds us responsible and accountable for being good stewards over what He's entrusted to us. And that's what we're talking about today, is the gift that God has given to you, no matter how spectacular it may be, or no matter how subtle it may be, whatever it is, God's entrusted it to you to be a steward over that gift. And Paul here says, the mysteries that were given to me, I am a steward of it, and what's required of a steward is that we be found faithful. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll see this same principle. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore, or as a consequence of it, be serious, that's sober-minded, watchful in your prayers, above all things fervent in love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, or use it in serving one another. Look at this. As good stewards of the manifold or many-sided or many-faceted grace of God. We've talked about that. What that means is these gifts that Christ has given have many facets or aspects to them. And you are at least one of those. So you cannot compare your gifting to somebody else's because God uses your gifting through your personality. God uses your gifting through your background, your way of seeing things. But there's someone that's your way of seeing things. There's someone that's your background. There's someone that's your way of thinking as you operate that gift through it is going to reach. I spent two years, my wife and I went to Bible school out in Oklahoma. We spent two, I spent two years there. She spent one year going through that school and every session I sat up there. Brother Hagen started each session with Turn to Mark 11, 23, and 24. I can't tell you the hundreds of times I heard him read that and explain it. Graduated from the school. I was pastoring a small church. 
and I was listening to a tape of Fred Price on Mark 11, 23, and 24. And suddenly, I saw it. I saw, I felt like an idiot. I said, you moved halfway across the country. Now, there were other things we got out of it, obviously. And you listened to that great man of faith teaching on that scripture, which, by the way, he didn't write. And now you're just getting it when you're listening to Fred Price. But here's the difference. Fred Price's method of teaching and of thinking is more in line with the way I think. And I could follow his step by step by step. And I could see how he got to the conclusion he got. So God was using a teacher. They're both teachers. But that other second teacher thought more the way I thought. So what God was using his personality and the, that particular facet of the gift of a teacher, which was different in, in him than it was in Brother Hagen, And he used that difference to get something through to me. That's an example of what he means by many-faceted grace. It's the same grace, the same gifting, but it's expressed through your personality. That's why you're so important. That's why you're so important. Because there's no one that has the personality that you do. Some of the wives are going, mm, that's right for sure. <laughs> don't, look at, don't look next to each other. There's, nobody has your personality. No one thinks exactly the way you think. No one looks exactly the way you look. And God wants to use those differences to touch somebody with that grace that he's put in you. That's why we looked at Psalm 139 and saw how God specially handcrafted you to be just the way you are. You're so special in God's eyes. Not just because he made you, but you're special because there's no one that can exactly take the place that he's called you to walk in. Nobody. And see, you may look at yourself and say, well, I'm not very special. But God's word says you are. God's word says you are. The manifold grace of God. But notice Peter says the same thing here. We are stewards of that grace. So we're going to talk this morning about what does that mean to be a steward of something that God has given to me. What does it mean to be a steward of something that God has given to me. Turn with me to Matthew 25. And some of you knew we'd end up there. Now while you're turning there, let me explain to you that Matthew 25 is part of a whole sermon that Jesus is teaching that starts in Matthew 24 about what's coming. And he's teaching the disciples and to prepare them for what is about to come upon them, upon the end of the age. And he does it through a series of some teachings and then through a series of parables. And so we see that there's a parable in here that talks about uh, of the faithful servant and the evil servant. He talks about the parable of the fig tree. And then he talks in verse chapter 25 about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. And all of those are different aspects about being ready. And, the, and the, the parable of the virgins is talking, of course there's a number of aspects to this, but he's talking basically about being watchful and waiting because you don't know when he's coming. So we're to live within an expectancy that the one that we're serving is coming back. And so we should live our lives accordingly realizing he is coming back. And what we do in the meantime 
has a whole lot to do with what happens when he comes back. And then he goes into this next parable, which starts in verse 14, which is again part of this general discussion of the end times. And this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to look at. And I'm going to read right down through it, and then we're going to go through and look at different aspects of it. For the kingdom of God is like a man traveling in a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability, immediately he went on a journey. And then he would receive the five talents, went and traded with them, and made an additional five talents. Likewise, he who received two gained two more. But he who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Verse 22, He also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he would receive the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, behold, what is yours? Verse 26, But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and I gather where I've not scattered seed. You ought to have deposited my money with bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he does have will taken away from him, cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I've struggled over this parable in the past. I have some parables that I really like, and some that have always kind of bothered me. And there's some that have bothered me more than this one. And I want to go through this, because I spent some time this week meditating on this, and I've begun to see some things in here that I've never seen before. What he's clearly talking about is stewardship. We've just seen in Romans chapter 12, we've just seen in 1 Peter chapter 4 that the gifts, the grace that God has given to us, not the grace to be saved, but that grace includes the gifting that God has, the special way that God's made you, is you are a steward over that. And it is required, which means something's going to be required, it is required that we be found to be, have been faithful with what was entrusted to us. So it behooves us to understand what this stewardship is about because what we're going to see is we're going to have to give an account of our stewardship. Part of my stewardship, part of my responsibility as your pastor is to explain these things to you and to help prepare you for what is to come. That's part of my responsibility. So if I shirk that responsibility and I just tell you sweet things that love we love to hear, then what's going to happen is I will not be found faithful with what I was given responsibility for. 
But what I've learned is this. The Bible tells us, the Bible is described as the good news, right? That's what gospel means. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good news. If it's good news, that means everything in it is good news. Now, there's some things I've read in there, and I don't see immediately why that's good news, but I'll decide ahead of time it's good news because this book is the good news. And once I make that decision that it's good news and look at it again, invariably I'll see why that particular thing is a matter of good news. So, all right. That's what our task is today. That's what we're going to look at today. All right, let's go back to the beginning of this. Some key insights here. The kingdom of God, verse 14, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants. See, we read so quickly sometimes, we overlook truths that are so important to us. He called his own servants to to him. These three men that we're going to look at today are his servants. In other words, they belong to him. So we're going to talk about who's got rights over what. And we've got to realize as we start out here, what we're talking about is a master and his servants. They belong to him. That means he's got complete right and authority over them. We're not talking about employees who have agreed to be paid by this gentleman. We're not talking about somebody talking to his neighbor or members of a club or other members within the church. We're talking about a master who's doing something with his servant. The next thing we want to see here is he called his servants and delivered his goods to them. In other words, what he is going to entrust to them still belongs to the master. See, for years I read through this too quickly and I didn't see these things. It's very important when you look, go to a play or, or you're going to a movie to know who the cast of characters are. What are their roles? Where do they fit in into the plot? And in this plot, in this parable that Jesus is teaching us, there are different players and who they are, their identity is so important to us because it helps to define what their rights are. So we're talking about three servants who belong to the master, and the goods that he is giving to them are the master's goods. So just because he gives these goods to his servants doesn't stop them from being his servants. And just because he gives these goods to his servants doesn't stop those goods from belonging to the master. All right, let's go on down. Because we're learning about stewardship. Now verse 15 is going to tell us the amounts that he gave and why. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. So he did not give them equal amounts. How did he decide what to give them? To each according to his own ability, and immediately 
he went on a journey. Now, I never saw this question until right now. His own ability to do what? His own ability to do what? To each one of these servants, he gave of his own goods differing amounts. To one he gives five, to another two, and to another one. And he dispenses these, he entrusts these according to the servants' abilities. Now, the first thing we've talked about, and we talked about this before, because we did read this story earlier in our study, and we saw one of the things we get out of this is God knows your ability. God knows your ability. So what He's going to entrust to you is not beyond your ability. Now, your perception of your ability and God's knowledge of your ability, notice I use two different words, are not always the same. See, we look at ourselves and think, I don't know that I can do that. That's your perception of your ability. But God doesn't perceive anything. He knows everything. See, you understand God doesn't have opinions? We have opinions. An opinion is an educated guess. When you know everything, you don't have to guess. So you don't have opinions. God doesn't have opinions. He just knows. So if there's a... I'll just let you in on this little secret. If there's a difference of opinion between you and God, I'll make it simple and short. He's always right. Because it's your opinion against what He knows. So if you have an opinion about your ability, He knows what your ability is. And therefore, God will almost always call you to do something that to you looks as if it's beyond your ability. But God knows what you can do. And we've talked about that before. But what I never saw until I was just reading is your ability to do what? Because we have different types of ability. My wife and I have different abilities. And that's part of growing in marriage is understanding each person's difference in ability and utilizing those to the best of, the, of, the, of, our, of our family. In this room right now are many abilities, but they're different abilities to do different things. What, what ability is he talking about here? Well, it doesn't say. But what I believe he's talking about is the ability to multiply the goods that were entrusted to them. So he said he understood what their differences in ability to multiply were. So to one with greater ability, he gave the greater amounts of money. Because talent here is not referring to your ability to sing, but obviously we're applying it in this area. Or your ability to whatever it is that God's given you. It's, a, it's an amount of money in the story. But it refers to something that's been entrusted to you. So obviously, the ability that the first person had was to the ability to take what that was used and make it profitable and multiply it. And so to the one that had the, greater, the greatest ability of the three, he gave the greatest amount. And to the second, who didn't have as much as the first in terms of ability, but had more than the third, he gave the second amount. And to the one that had the least ability, he gave the least amount. Now, see, what that does is, see, see, God holds us responsible based on the ability that He's given you, not on the ability He's given me, not on the ability He's given somebody else. See, this is why we can't compare ourselves 
to one another? I mean, one reason is because we're part of the same body. So why does my left hand compare itself to my right hand? They have different functions. But we also can't compare ourselves because the gifts that God's given to you are, co- are according to the ability that He knows you have. And so we don't see Him here, God, comparing the return of the one that brings back ten from the one that only brings back four. Because they each did it according to the ability that they've been given. So the first thing we see about stewardship is you're only responsible to use the abilities that God's given you. You're not responsible for the results because we so clearly in this story because they don't come back with the same results. Now the third guy, of course, he's treated differently. But the first two are, are, have do the same thing and get the same response. And he says the same thing to both of them because what he holds them accountable for is to take what they were given and use it to the best of their ability. So God does not expect you to use your ability to accomplish something beyond the ability that he's given to you. So the first thing we see is the servants don't belong to themselves, they belong to him, the master. The second thing is the goods that are given to them are not theirs. Just because he, he didn't give them to them as a gift. Because when you give a true gift, it's now no longer yours. Some of us need to learn that. I was raised in a family where gifts that were given had strings attached. You know what that means? You got the gift, but there was always something that came along. Sometimes it was a long string. But it would come up at some point. Last year I gave you such and such, and you haven't, blah, 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 blah. That's a string. That means the gift wasn't given. Because if there's still a string on it, I haven't let go of control of it completely. So if these were true gifts that he gave to the servants. Now they would be owned by the servants and the servants would have the complete right to do with it what they want. Now here's the first place it becomes relevant to us. We're raised in a society and in a culture and really in a culture within the church that I can, you know, the gifts that I've been given are mine to decide whether I want to use them or not. So whatever talents I may have, it's mine. So if I use it, then God's going to be graced by the fact that I used it. He'll be pleased because I decided to use my talent for His glory. That's not scriptural. Because what we see here is it's not my talent. I never had ownership of it. In fact, if you study your Bible carefully, you'll discover we don't own anything. Everything we have has been entrusted to us. But we're talking now about the abilities that God has given to us, the graces that God has put into us. So we see here that they don't belong to the servant. It's still the master's talents. And whatever abilities God's given to you, they're still his. That means I don't own them. If something I own, I have the authority to use in whatever way I choose. But something that's been entrusted to me, I must use it in line with the terms of the trust with which it was given to me, in, terms of, in the terms in which it was entrusted to me. The other thing is if I've been given a gift, a true gift, it's now mine, I don't ever have to account for what I do with it because it was mine. 
So I've, we've given children, you know, you, if, you, if, if I give a gift to one of our children and they turn around and give it to somebody else, that happened one time. I, I gave one of our children a, a guitar that I'd had, somebody given me. It was a nice guitar. And they turned around and gave it to somebody else, actually one of our other children. But I couldn't get upset at that, could I? Why? Because it was their gift to give away. When I gave it to, when I gave it to my son, it was now his to do with as he chose. He could have taken that guitar and smashed it to pieces if he wanted to. Now, I probably would have said something about that because it was, not, it was not a wise use of a gift, but he had the right to do that if he wanted to because I gave it to him. But we're not talking in this parable about the, 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 the gifts that he gave to them. We're talking about talents that were entrusted to them as stewards. And we see the Apostle Paul says that I've been made a steward of the mysteries that were given to me by, by Christ. And you've been made a steward of certain giftings that God has given to you. And that means that they're no longer, they're not yours, they're His. In fact, we see from this story, you're not yours. Paul trying to teach this to some of the disciples in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians says, don't you understand who you are? You're not your own anymore. You were bought with a price. See, to come into the kingdom of God, He paid the price. It's free. But to get in, you've got to give your life to Him. We talk about, I gave my life to the Lord, but we don't mean that. We have strings attached. I've loaned my life to Him so that I can get into the kingdom. But when I want to do what I want to do, I'm going to meddle here a little bit. When I want to do what I want to do, I pull, it's mine. We live in a society where laws are based on the fact this is my body. I can do with it what I want. That's one thing for the world. It's a very different thing for the, for the church. Because the Bible says your body's not your own. We just saw in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, make your bodies a living sacrifice. Getting awful quiet in here. <laughs> Pastor, preach faith. I want to hear faith. Well, it takes faith to do this. <laughs> Praise God. Where were we? All right, we better move on. All right. Verse 16. He who received the five talents went and traded them. He entered into an exchange with them. And we did talk about that before. That means he had to, he had to, he had to enter into commerce with them. And in order to do that, he had to take some risks. He had to take what was entrusted to him and invest it. When you invest something, you're letting go of it, although you still have rights to it. But you're taking the risk of using it for what its purpose is so that you can get a return on that back. Investment counselors, investment advisors, and investment people, one of the things they evaluate as to whether something is a good, a good investment is does it have a good rate of return? Is it bringing back enough of a return on the investment to make it a wise investment? And here the return they get back is 100%. That's an incredible rate of return. And so, so in, but in order to do that, there's risk involved. You have to take what you have and you've got you've to use it and let it go so that it can be used for its purpose, which is to bring... An, you, you know, it takes money to make money. You've heard that expression? 
But the only way that money's going to make money is if you let it go and invest it. And to do that, you take some kind of a risk. And that's in part what this parable is about. So the first one went and traded the five and made five more. The second one, but he received, uh, in verse 17, likewise he received two talents, gained two more. Verse 18, but he received the one talent, went and dug it in the ground and hid the Lord's, the Lord's, the Lord's money. Now why did he put it in the ground? Because that's the safest place to put it if your only goal is to be able to give back what was given to you. It's the safest thing to do if your goal is to simply give back what was given to you because there's no risk, at least to our natural understanding, there's no risk to simply put it in the ground because if the banks fail, if the, if the stock market falls apart, at least you've got what you put in the ground. <clears throat> People that came through the Great Depression, many of them, what they started doing when they started making money again is they wouldn't trust banks so they put it in mattresses, and they they just physically hold on to cash. Uh, and, and so they would so they would uh, have it because they could know because they've seen banks fail. So they can know they get their hand. That's the safest thing, in some ways, but it's not the way to make a profit. It's a waste of that money. And so that's what this third servant did. All right, now let's see what happens. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts. So one of the things being taught here is there will come a day when the Lord will come and settle accounts. This has nothing to do with whether you're saved. This has nothing to do with whether God loves you. This has nothing to do with any of that. What it has to do with is an account of what we did with what He entrusted to us. That's all this is taught. But this is important because this day will come. Verse 20. So he had received the five talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside. Verse 21. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. First thing we see out of there confirms what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What's required of a servant is not results but faithfulness. Faithfulness doesn't just mean I give back, I didn't lose anything. Faithfulness means I did with what you gave me what you required. I fulfilled my purpose and my assignment. We're going to see, we may not have time to get there this morning, we're going to see very clearly that you are not responsible for the results that's not what he's rewarding here. He's not saying you produced a good return. 
Because if he did, he would have rewarded the first servant more than the second servant because the first servant gave a better return than the second servant. He produced more, not percentage-wise, but in amounts. But what he rewards them for is their faithfulness. Faithfulness just means I did what I was asked to do. That's what faithful means. I did what, I was, what was required of me. I completed my assignment. And what we see here is that the master is saying, you have now proven by the way you handled your stewardship over this gifting that I gave you here, you have proven to me your faithfulness. As a result, I can now trust you to be ruler over much. You have been my servant. I'm now going to put you in responsibility and authority over much. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, I think it's around verse 6, the beginning of chapter 6, Paul talks about he's correcting them on a certain issue. And what he's saying here is, he said, I understand that some of you Christians are going to a pagan judge. You're going to court to settle your disputes. He says, if you've got to do that, you've failed as Christians. If you, as part of the same body, can't work this out among yourselves, <clears throat> then you failed. He says, if we can't handle our own disputes among ourselves, <clears throat> how are we going to handle that ultimate responsibility that God's going to give us? And he says, because what you're going to end up doing is some of you are going to rule over angels. So what that tells us is that when we go into this next life, when Jesus comes back and, and establishes His kingdom here, we're not going to just sit around with harps drinking iced tea, singing beautiful songs together, worshiping God. We're going to have responsibilities. There's going to be work to do. Oh, you mean I don't get out of work when I get to heaven? Oh, that's when it begins. This is your training ground. This is your training ground for your assignment because he's going to come back and establish a kingdom here. And he is going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's going to be ruler over rulers. And you, listen to me carefully, you are determining in this life, the way you walk out your responsibilities to Him, you are determining your assignment in that life. You are. This is only for a few years. That assignment is forever. And when we look at this and say, oh, I don't know, I got a busy schedule, you know, Pastor, I got lots of stuff to do. Understand, step back, and look at the time picture here. You've got a lot of things to do, but only a short period of time where we're talking about that. But what you do with these eternal things is determining what you're going to be doing not just for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's going to be determining what you're going to do for eternity. Because what you're proving to Him is how faithful you are with, relatively speaking, the little that He's given you. Well, let's go on.
Verse 22, he would also receive the two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him again, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Then though he had received the one talent, came and said, now I, this, I, <clears throat> I never understood this until last night. Just a little side here. What to do when you don't understand something? I'm sitting there meditating on this. I said, Lord, I've taught this many, many times. I've studied this many, many times. I went through some commentaries yesterday to find out what some other people thought of this. So finally last night, when I exhausted every other resource, I sat down and I asked the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I wanted to, I'm sharing this little part because he's the same one that lives in you. I said, I want to know what that means. It says, I, I, I know that you sow where you do, you reap where you do not sow, and you gather where you did not scatter seed. I used to read that and think, you know, I'm thinking you're unfair. But then the master goes on and said, you know that I reap where I did not sow, and you know that I gather where I did not scatter seed. And then I saw it. Get this picture of a master of a, of a, of a farm who's got all these servants, does he actually go himself and scatter the seed? No. That's what the servants do. But who gets the harvest? The master. What he's saying is, I've delegated this to you. You know that I've delegated this to you. And the, and the servant's saying, I know that you're expecting me to sow the seed. You're expecting me to, to, to make the investment. I know you're expecting that of me. But he goes on and says, but I was afraid. Afraid of what? What is the thing that holds us back more than anything else from risking to step out and to use what God's given us? It's the fear of failure, isn't it? It's the fear of failure. And we see here what gripped this man's heart was the fear of failure. We went, looked back before, last week or so, back in Romans chapter 12. We didn't go through and read all those scriptures. But in Romans chapter 12, somewhere around verse 4 or 5 or 6, somewhere in there, it says, he says, take the gift, exercise the gift of faith that's been given to you. It takes, see, faith and fear are the opposite of each other. So if you're afraid of failing, that means you're not in faith in the exercise of that gift. Failure, fear, is always based on looking at yourself. Faith is based on looking at God and what He's like and what He'll do. Satan's device is always to get you to look at yourself. When God called Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God gives him his responsibility and says, I have called you, my children, my people in Egypt have cried out to me, I've heard their cry, and I am sending you to deliver them. And Moses' first reaction was, <laughs> uh, have you made some mistake here? I mean, remember me? Who am I? In other words, his first reaction was to look at himself and his abilities. And he knew his failures. He knew his background. He knew the mistake he made. He knew that he saw himself as being cast aside and thrown into the, on the backside of the desert. So he's looking, what are my qualifications? And God's answer to Moses is the same answer to you. I'll be with you. In other words, I'm not counting on you. 
I just need you to go. I can't physically go. I need you to go, but I'm going with you. I'm going to supply the ability, so get your eyes off of you and get your eyes on me. Moses was gripped with fear that he was going to fail. And, and through a revelation of God, God got his eyes off of himself and on him, on God. So this servant's eyes were on himself. And he was afraid that he could not produce. So he did the safe thing. He buried it in the ground. If you go on, what you see is the master's description of him was he was wicked and lazy. That tells me God does not consider fear in a very high regard. God does not consider fear of failure as an acceptable excuse. Why? Because He's made Himself available. Fear of failure is selfish. Because what it says is what I'm afraid of is what I, how I'm going to look if I make a mistake. If I step out and I become an usher, what if I do something wrong? That's concern about how you look. God wants us concerned about how He looks to glorify Him. And so as you, the way to solve the fear of failure is to realize you already have. We've all failed. Romans chapter 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. Whatever you can do and I can do is only by the grace of God. The only failure you can have is to not exercise the gift. The only way you can be guaranteed to fail is by holding on to what you have out of fear. That is guaranteed failure. But if you step out in faith, and it may not turn out the way you want, at least you have done what you are responsible to do. Because remember, He's responsible for the results. You're just responsible for exercising the gift. The fear of failure. Because he goes on to say, verse 25, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, I brought back to you what's yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you know that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. You ought to have at least deposited my money with the bankers. That would have been safe. And at my own coming, I would have at least received back my own interest. In other words, to say, that was not a good enough excuse. If your real concern was that you didn't want to lose my investment, then what you should have done is at least put it in a bank. The fear of failure. It is required of a steward that we be found faithful. I'm not my own. I know I'm his friend. I know he loves me. But in terms of working for him, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's identity. I belong to him. Therefore, everything I do is intended to be a service to him. Performing my... Just as you're... But see, why are we, why are we so surprised at that? My little finger belongs to me. My little finger doesn't seem offended because it's lost its identity. It's part of my finger. It's part of my body. I don't want an identity apart from Christ. I want to be known as His, belonging to Him. That's why Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but it's Christ who lives in me. So I'm, I'm his servant. I belong to him. That means he has the rights. Secondly, what gifts he's given to me are not, they're, they're, they're entrusted to me. They still belong to him. I went through a time, and I'll end with this, I went through a time, a, a part of God's preparing me, I believe, for this role, for this, this assignment, where he would use these gifts. I would go and I would teach for a while, and then the opportunities would stop. And I'd just come back and sit in the blue chair in church. And I'd get so frustrated. I'd say, God, you get all those juices going again. You know, I'd, oh, it's fun, because see, I'd rather do this than breathe. And then I'd got to sit and be still again. And then maybe a year later, I'd have an opportunity to, to preach somewhere. Pastor Sam would send me somewhere or do something. Or, I, or I'd stand here and preach on a Wednesday night or something. And then I'd sit for another six months, eight months. And I'm getting so frustrated. And finally, what God, when I went to him, I said, what is going on? He said, I'm training you that you understand, first of all, that the gift that's in you is mine. It's not yours. And because it's mine, I have the absolute right to use it when I want to use it, how I want to use it, and where I want to use it. And he said, that means if I choose to never let you have, that, have you use that gift again, what's that to you? Because it's my gift. You will not be accountable for using the gift as long as you use it when I have you use it. So you're not responsible for the results. And that was training me so that I would recognize that as God would use me, that it's nothing about me that I can take credit for. That whatever gifting God's given me belongs to Him. Whatever he's given you belongs to him also. He has the right to tell you to use it or to tell you not to use it. That's his right because it belongs to him. And what's required is that we be found faithful 